Hey everybody, welcome to episode, I think by this time, is uh, number 15 of the Bridge Courage and Kindness podcast. I am your host, Ansys, and uh, I'm here today with my buddy, Jason. Jason, could you please introduce yourself? Nice to meet you guys. I'm Jason. I was born in New York, lived in China for a few years, and then moved back to the States. Great introduction. All right, bro. So, um, so how did how did we meet? When when did we meet? How did we meet? What was like? Uh, what was what was that like? Honestly, it would be around the beginning of February of 2020. I was just chilling in my dorm or the hostel with Dan and Antoine, and this guy Ansis just walks in with his dad in a huge black suitcase, and that's where I first met you. Yeah, yep, that, that's true. Uh, I remember, so basically, it was really funny. So the first time we met, I think I, I, I had Dayan on the show before. Uh, we, we talked about this as well, I think. But uh, so the first time we met, uh, it was like for a very brief, brief moment, because like I, I put down my suitcase and then I went to like stay a night with my dad at like a hotel kind of thing. And then the next day, I came in and like started to get settled and uh and then we went for like a tour we went for like a tour around Tartu right and so around this tour like uh Jason the super friendly guy super nice guy and he's like yo man like there's uh there's gonna be like a pre at pre at my place tonight and uh and I was like yeah bro let's go to the pre at your place that's sick man let's do it up do it up do it up and that's kind of before I even knew that Jason was my roommate. So then, like, basically for, like, the whole day, we're like, yo, Priyat Jason's, bro, Priyat Jason's. It's telling, like, all these random people, right? And then and then basically we go home, bro, and then we just go to the same room. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, Priyat, our place then, yeah. Uh, yeah, bro. But uh, so, so tell me about, I guess, your experience, uh, our shared experience in Tartu. How was that for you? Because for me, it was... Uh, a lot of people like a lot of people a lot of partying a lot of like exchange students because we were like in the exchange student dorms and and for a month it was like really high energy really fun it was a lot of uh, yeah just partying going to different places meeting different people um but how how did how was your experience in Tartu? honestly i wasn't expecting what i was getting into at all for my university, when I chose to study abroad, um, I think the only two countries left on my list was like Norway and Estonia. And at that point, I didn't even know where Estonia was in the world. And I was like, I'll just give it a try and um, see how it turns out. So after I applied, I looked up the country and apparently it's in it's like below Finland. Yeah. But um, yeah, definitely like a lot of partying and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess uh, my question for you would be um, before we like, experienced COVID and before the lockdown and stuff like that, um, how actually, no, not before. When we experienced COVID in the lockdown, I went back to Latvia for like a weekend and then I stayed there for like six months, but you still stayed in the hostel, well, not hot with dorm slash hostel kind of vibe. So you still stayed in the hostel. So, so how was that kind of like first, like kind of pandemic moment for you? Cause you were in a different country, you know, with people from all over the place, all students, all wanting to party. So, so how'd you experience that? 
Well, at that point, I still had like two months left of my uh, lease at the hostel because uh, it was like end of March when um, things started going down really bad. I remember like my school advisors and um, the embassy were like calling me. They're like, Jason, you got to go back to the States. And my mom was also at the same time calling me, begging me to come back. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it doesn't make sense because the case for me at that time was that there was like, what, like 50 cases in Estonia at that time. And there was close to like a million in the U.S. I was like, it doesn't make sense for me to go back. Mm-hmm. But then my mom was like, if you don't come back, I'm going to cut you off. So I'm just like, all right. I'll fly back. And it was honestly one of the most weird slash fascinating experience because the whole plane only had two people, like, mm-hmm. except like the flight attendants and stuff. It was crazy. Yeah. But, uh, but were you in Estonia when like the, everything was kind of being like, like the dorm had like the outbreak and everything was being locked down then? Were you, were you there at that time? I actually left just before the dorms got locked down. Wonderful timing, broski. <laughs> honestly, wonderful timing. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I um, it was weird, though, because uh, I remember I remember that was just a really strange time because that was before we knew everything was going to change. We were just like, what the fuck uh, is happening here? Uh, somebody's sick. And now a lot of people are sick, but like I still kind of wanted to have my experience. And then everything went online. And then like, you know, I spent a whole year of university, more like a year and a half, like more than half my degree or about half my degree was online. Right. So. I guess my question now is, how are you doing now? How's, how's your experience now compared to, you know, you were in Estonia before, but now you're in Iowa. Am I, am I correct? Yes. Perfect. Iowa so for, City. Yeah, Iowa City. So tell me about university. Tell me about college in Iowa City. How you doing? How, 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 yeah, how's, how's your experience with that? Um, it's, been, it's been going back to normal, like pre-COVID pandemic-wise. Iowa actually has one of the loosest laws regarding like social distancing and masking. Like our governor, like she banned um, all public institutions from requiring people from wearing face masks indoor. So basically you can go anywhere without a face mask right now wild bro so like and like for context i'm i'm in latvia right now and we're having the worst numbers in this country that there have ever been and uh like the highest percentages in europe at least and uh now we have like a like a like an hour where like there's uh there's hours of the day where you can't really be outside just just to make sure that people aren't like mixing houses and stuff like that which is pretty crazy uh, because i've never experienced that before like for example i flew back from berlin not not too long ago i flew back from berlin on on friday and i had like a boys weekend with my two little brothers and it was like a lot of fun we we had a great time berlin beautiful city great art great beer honestly would recommend um also the architecture was fascinating because of the layers of history within that city but but so we we like fly back and then we're we're we have to when we land we land after 8 p.m and so we have to fill out a form basically stating why we're out of the house at that time. And on our way home, we drive like about an hour away from the airport, right? So we're driving an hour away from the airport, we get stopped at a checkpoint. And we're just like, there's like military, well, not really military, but like police officers or like military police officers, just like stopping every car going either way of the highway, 
checking all their documents to make sure that everything's okay taking your like personal id number just to like you know book that you were outside of the house at that time and you have an acceptable reason to be outside of the house so it was like a very eerie feeling because you're driving through like the main city of this region and of the country um and you know and nobody's around maybe there's like two or three cars on the street but like the only people who are out are cats and they're not eating people you know what i mean <laughs> so so it's like this very eerie feeling because you know like it's been a year or like a year and nine months since the pandemic kind of began in I don't know western or like you know the European Union kind of thing and you'd expect that people would have things under control but you know life is as dynamic as it is bro like as soon as you think something's gonna be I you know you know something else happens and you're like okay maybe maybe it's not all right so so it's it's an interesting experience because you know this is like my I guess third official lockdown because I had one in in Europe like last year March 2020 then I had one when I flew back to Canada in Toronto from about like November to March. It was quite locked down. Um, and then now this is like the most intense one that I've that I've experienced. So, you know, COVID-19, man, um, it's just that like uh, it's just that girlfriend you can't dump. You know what I mean? She won't go away. <laughs> <laughs> the toxic ex. <laughs> Real, bro. She's just the toxic ex. But yeah, you know, so um, I guess I'd like you to tell me a little bit about what it is like to be kind of Chinese and also American, to have both of that like dual ethnicity, dual nationality kind of thing going on. Yeah, 100%. Um, before the pandemic, believe it or not, out of, I'm 21 right now, 20 years of my life, obviously I knew that I was Chinese American, that mm -hmm. I was like an ethnic minority in most Western countries. But before the pandemic, I never felt like a minority before. It's, mm -hmm. it's so hard to describe. Like I never felt being any sort of or form of oppression, mm -hmm. never been called a slur to my face, probably because I grew up in a a pretty liberal city in Iowa. So, mm -hmm. but after the pandemic that really like changed how I see a lot of things. And even though like a lot of companies or organizations would like slap out the term like model minority for Asians and stuff, like how they're just keep their head down, hardworking, honest, you know, but after that, I just realized like Asians are very much so part of the systemic like oppression in going on in this country like mm. at the end of the day yeah yeah bro so if you don't mind me asking um how how do you have how have you experienced since the pandemic um the kind of I guess antagonism against Asian Americans. Have you? Has anybody like uh, walked up to you and said something really mean? Has anybody been like really racist towards you? Like how? How have you experienced that more? Personally, I am pretty lucky to say this, but I have not experienced any direct form of racism mm -hmm. since the pandemic started. Because I'm like a six-three dude, and nobody would rather come up and like mess with me. But um, I have a lot of Asian friends around me who told me that they've been followed 
um, sometimes when they have the windows down driving on the way, like um, mm. people would call them the slur or mm. like flip them off and all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff. So uh, that's yeah. Wild. yeah, bro. Like, honestly, it's been, it's been interesting to kind of see because like, um, I mean, in times of prosperity, you know, like you don't really see how people really do kind of choose sides and choose minorities or not choose minorities let me let me find the words properly in times of prosperity it's easier to kind of be a good person um but when things are happening um and things like like a pandemic are changing the fundamental structure of how you exist in this world of of your life of who you can meet when you can meet um where you can go how does that look like then you can really see how people kind of resort to identifying factors as ways to either emotionally express themselves emotionally express their frustration so using something as a symbol to express a frustration of a larger issue towards that individual thing than it is in like when it's when things are going well and it's been really telling I think for me at least to kind of see how people have emotionally connected to different I guess um, themes and topics like race or vaccination or whatever like democracy and parties you know political parties and stuff like that and how they really like to hang on to the I guess, identity of those things as a way to experience the world in a time where it's not just like, fuck, things are shitty. It's like, no, things are shitty because of this. Like, like people have this need to kind of blame something or blame someone. And, and you know, like, I, I'm not necessarily against this in the sense of like, like, I bitch all the time about random stuff. Like I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm not so happy that I have to sit at home every day between eight and 5 PM because, you know, I obviously want to meet my friends, but at the same time, it's not like I'm going to go out and protest that because it's like, things are fucking bad. And sometimes you just got to sit at home and accept things are not going well. And for me, it's been really telling, especially as a young, young, young human uh, growing up in this digital era, because we, we believed for so long, bro, you know, like I've been taught so many times about like, uh, you know, think like if we just look at race, for example, like you've been taught about civil rights and the development of civil rights for me, mostly about Canada and how that's developed in like 1982 or 1981, somewhere there, 79, I don't know, the early, late 70s, early 80s. Charter of Rights and Freedoms and how that instated some sort of like liberality and some sort of equality kind of within the society. But then, you know, today, if you look at a Canadian perspective, then there's um, like Indigenous issues are still really high and the segregation of Indigenous communities and their lack of resources and their lack of wealth and the continued kind of um, subjugation of communities has really come to the forefront like Canada on the 31st of September created a a reconciliation day like it's like a national kind of uh, day of mourning right and and recognition of of indigeneity and how they have been how indigenous people and communities have been marginalized and have been taken advantage of for hundreds of years but you know at the same time like 
we I like from my experience it's been like it was so pointed that like you know we're like advanced people or like not advanced people but like uh, like we've advanced as a community as a society et cetera et cetera behind besides like beyond these points of whatever be these points of segregation and marginalization but it is very obvious to me now that we have not grown up that much bro it's like it's like I, it's like me being like an 18 year old kid being like yeah you know i'm an adult for real you know and then like you're, you 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 turn like for me i'm 22 and i look back at me being 18 and i was like i was i was far from understanding what life was back then um but yeah bro so that's strange and i guess i have a question for you which is how how has your experience in Europe kind of changed your perception of the U.S.? Honestly, um, one of my first culture shock would have to link back to um, the pregame that you mentioned earlier. Mm. So um, after knowing that we we're doing a bar crawl, I tried to invite as many people as I could, probably like 20 of them, because in my American mind that time, like maybe like a third to a half of them would show up mm-hmm. instead like all of them showed up and some of them even brought friends <laughs> and that's how we overpacked our um, dorms but anyway what i learned out of this is that like um americans tend to like to um sugarcoat slash flake sometimes like mm-hmm. they would um say they would do something in reality they don't but it's considered rude to say no in front of someone so they say yeah but then they say no later kind of mm-hmm. Yeah. So like probably like being honest with uh, people is definitely something that really shocked me in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, for me, it trips me out because in every different European country, there's like a different kind of um, way of, I guess, social interaction. Right. And, and like when I'm in Canada, more or less, like if I'm in Toronto, if I'm in Vancouver, there's going to be minor differences, like in the language we use, but at the same time, it's going to be, pretty unanimous with like hey how are you oh uh, good how are you okay have a nice day see you later but like here usually you know like you don't really ask people hey how are you like you know what I mean just kind of go about your business <laughs> go about your day um so that for me is a little bit of has been a little bit of a culture shock but I kind of want to ask you about your business experience and uh and because you study business at the University of Iowa right Yes, sir. All right, bro. So let me let me ask you, why, why are you <laughs> studying business, man? What, what's what, what got you to that point? Well, um, partially due to my parents, because uh, my parents are big business people. Um, I wanted to study biology for a while in high school, in college, but they're like, you do business first. You find yourself a job and, um, you know, once you have enough, go back and study what you want. And I wasn't against like business at all. Like I wasn't Mm -hmm. like, oh, fuck business. You know, I was like, okay, I'll try that. And then I got to Iowa where I am right now. I declared finance and econ. And uh, gradually I like fell in love with like finance and econ. Like I started trading stocks and things were going well. I was like, I was happy. And, you know, and eventually um, by the time I got to Estonia, I was like venturing into e-commerce, which is basically um, drop shipping. Mm-hmm. where you buy products from one person and sell at a higher price to another group of people. And it's like, yeah. Right. And so when it comes to drop shipping, bro, so can you, can you 
so how what's your experience with that band has it been successful has it not really been as successful as you were hoping how much effort do you need to put into it for it to be like something that could be sustainable you know just um to be honest the hardest part of drop shipping is probably marketing your product first you got to find like a good product that people would want but then marketing it to the right group of people is what makes all the differences like um, you create a store, you source your product from um, a factory store like AliExpress, you market them through like Facebook or Instagram. And uh, you just hope that like the amount that people buy will cover your costs and your product costs and everything. And it definitely hasn't been like successful for me in the beginning. My first three stores that I've created all failed. <laughs> like <laughs> weeks of effort, like just gone. And I've lost money on marketing and stuff too, but yeah. Right. And so let me, let me ask you, cause you know, me and my philosophy and like, I like asking questions. So what's the, like, um, what's the ethicality of, 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 of like dropshipping and stuff like that? Cause you're just like a middleman, you know what I'm saying? So, that, so like, how do you feel when you, when you do that stuff? Do you, do you think it's ethical? Do you think it's unethical? Like, like, how do you, how would you describe the ethicality of dropshipping? Yeah, no, um, I don't think it's, unethical because at the end of the day aren't we all just middlemen like we don't like we 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 craft things but we use things that are already crafted for us like paintbrush mm -hmm. like if you want to paint something you don't make your own paintbrush right so yeah true 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 but i see it more as value adding mm -hmm. for example um i know this uh let's say like i have this amazing thing that i got for ten dollars but it could be worth twenty dollars for someone so ideally, if I spend the effort finding the person who's willing to pay $20 for it, the effort I'd put into it should be the value that I add to them because I'm connecting um, the buyers to the product, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, right, right, right. yeah. All right. So through value adding their yeah, I, I get what you're saying. So, so through finding the people who want that product and who are willing to pay for that product, then your work is value added to said base material and then that is the kind of whole and whatever you have a profit it's your profit all right 100%, yeah i got you i got you so so then tell me a little bit more about stocks because because there's stocks and then there's crypto right what mm -hmm. do you like more and why honestly um i've never been a big crypto person uh maybe because i don't understand enough about it Mm -hmm. but in my opinion stocks are a lot more reliable because it's backed by an actual an actual company you know like company that employs people that makes products and like makes a revenue and, and stuff while crypto is more like borderline currency slash asset like mm -hmm. i don't see much difference between like a Bitcoin and compared to like the same amount in like gold, you know, they're just stuff yeah. that people use as um, a way to store value. But um, the thing with gold is that like, it's pretty versatile. We use them for like many things. So it has like intrinsic value in them. While mm -hmm. cryptocurrency, I feel like what it offers is like, um, like easy transfer of money and like secure transfer of money but besides that the value in my opinion is just whatever people gives it so right. i don't really believe in crypto as much 
Real, real, real. Bro, honestly, I do not know very much about crypto or stocks, but I like crypto more because it sounds cooler, um, to be honest. Sounds cooler and you can put like, I don't know, $5 in a coin, leave it there for 10 years. Hopefully, you know, it's like it's like Jack and the Magic Beanstalk, bro. You, you like buy like some random coin. Hopefully you, you put it down in the ground. Hopefully in 10 years, it's like a million dollars. Yeah. But, you know, me, you know, like, finances i'm 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 a little bit less about investing and more just about balancing budgets, oh, yeah. i suppose you know what i mean make sure i have <laughs> enough money and uh able yeah, to pay for I, everything. <laughs> I can i can tell are you like a risk taker more um like investment when it comes to, yeah i mean depending on the type of investment i'm doing so for me like when it comes to stock i don't have the finances to be able to I guess go into the big uh like the bigger value stocks the higher value stocks so mm. what i look for in stock is basically minimum profit but like over like a long period of time and so it doesn't fluctuate too high doesn't come down too low so like i have that money there and if i ever need it i can take it out and hopefully it's like a little bit percentage is like developed over it with crypto honestly bro I just bought as many different coins as I could for a very low price and I'm just seeing it go up and then I'm seeing it go down. So with crypto, it's more kind of like gambling a little bit because you don't really know how the market's going to go and you don't really have too much control over it. I mean, like if you are more educated about the subject, then, you know, I would say crypto is probably an easier way to gain money quicker. Um, but I feel like stocks would be more of a way to kind of, I guess, divest, like divert investments and make sure you don't have too much money sitting in one space. So then you can, you can have it like flowing a little bit more, but to be honest, broski, I, I, I gotta ask my little brother about this. Cause he knows way more than I do. Um, <laughs> I, uh, but I, it is interesting though, I guess, how everybody recently, because of the, I guess, democratization of financing um, and, you know, like stock market and like stock market apps and like crypto apps and stuff like that, how more people have gotten into that in the past, like a little bit, like majority people my age, maybe not majority, but I would say at least 50% of the people are either putting some investment in stocks, some investment in cryptocurrency. And so it's, it's interesting because it's like a completely different way because, you know, back in the day, it used to be kind of, you know, the old movies of how like Wall Street worked where everybody's on their phone, like calling, being like, buy this many stocks. Yes, they sell it. And then they like cheer and everybody's cheering and stuff and everybody's high stress and everything. I'm sure that still exists. But like now it's like, you know, you open up your phone and you're like, I'm going to put $50 into this random thing. Hopefully it goes well. <laughs> so like as a, as a, as a finance and econ man, how have you seen that kind of affect personal wealth and personal wealth growth? And how do you see it affecting it in the long run? Um, honestly though, like it's more like people have control over what they want to invest in. Cause um, historically households in like at least the u.s have always owned half of the stock market through like pension funds like retirement accounts and everything they just don't actively in and like manage it it's like the investment banks that like does like the buying and selling mm -hmm. but um now with uh people getting into um like the real estate market they can just be like oh yeah i'm gonna buy like this and 
hopefully the price goes up. But I'd say the market for like stocks are getting a lot more volatile mm -hmm. just because like um, people who do like finance and investment banking for a living, they have like a specific way of calculating like value in the company and stuff compared to like maybe just a random person who believes in like, like let's say GameStop and they just pump the price up, you know, it's just, <laughs> market's just, uh, it's very volatile, very unpredictable right now, but I think it's just going to get even more so as time goes on. Right. Yeah. Um, what inspired me to get into stocks and like crypto and stuff like that? So I have a buddy of mine, Bobby, and Bobby lives like he's a frat boy in um, in in Canada. He uh, he lives in a he lives in a house with uh, some old frat boys and he um, and they're like really into kind of stocks and putting stuff in there. And like I went over to Bobby's house one time to play poker and poker you know quite a difficult game to get into if you've never really played it um if you don't know if you don't know what's happening but uh but we were just like having a few beers and uh and I, I was doing quite well at poker until I started to become overconfident and was like you know when you don't trust your gut and you're like trying to think too hard and you lose anyway yeah. wasn't going too hot <laughs> wasn't going bad but it wasn't wasn't the best but that night bobby uh bobby like uh and his boys were telling me about their investments and their investments in a um in a like a movie stock or something like that in uh, in the states uh do you know what i'm talking about or i think so are they oh yeah, yeah they're amc right amc that's it so they were talking <laughs> about amc and they were talking about some sort of squeeze and some sort of something and they were telling me how like how much it like grew in such a quick amount of time and and all that but uh, i kind of i kind of do see a similarity i guess between uh investments and especially investments in volatile markets like and in volatile stocks like you'd say amc or uh or you know cryptocurrency and like a poker game you know what I mean? Like if you don't necessarily kind of follow your own compass, follow your own knowledge of the product, and you're kind of like looking around seeing what everybody else is doing, you could hold on for too long. You could have that like that winning hand, but you fold it too early. You know what I mean? Or, or you know, you, that guy just bluffed so much that you were like, fuck, I could have had that. I could have had that. That was my money to get. You know what I mean? So, so I think there's like a there's knowledge that you have to have when you play games or not play games, but invest. Well, when you do both play card games and when you do invest, there's like a prior set of knowledge and skills that you need. But at the same time, I think, I think it's insanely important to be able to listen to yourself and listen to like, what do you think is good at that point and not worry about if there's going to be like, you know, just around the corner, I'm going to make so much more money. You know what I mean? Cause like, what if you don't, <laughs> what if yeah. you don't? Yeah, bro. But, um, but I guess I just want to ask you about university and, and the workforce. So when it comes to your university experience so far, um, do you think that it would be more beneficial for you after your finance and econ degree to go straight into some sort of job some sort of corporate job or do you think for yourself it'd be more beneficial to go to a grad school or choose some more education before you would then go into the workforce for me right now um 
the short answer would be, I think it'd be beneficial for me to just go into the workforce, work for a few years, and then potentially jump back out mm. and then pursue a higher degree. But realistically, I don't believe that's going to happen. And I've seen it not happen to many people. They right. just hop in a job and then suddenly 20 years gone, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. All right. And and for you, when it comes to like... Um educational experience what do you what do you look for in educational experience do you look for like prestige do you look for like individual kind of uh like what interests you the most and where you think you would be most comfortable as an individual or would you look for something that'd be like a big school but a really good school and you'd want to go there because for me that's always been kind of the question like i chose u of t because it was number one and it was as simple as that bro i i i wanted to live downtown toronto i applied to schools got into both of them u of t was number one so i was like that's where I'm going. But, you know, now it's interesting because like I just graduated and I'm looking at grad school applications and in, in, in a year, you know, starting uh, 2022, because that's next year, 2022, September. Uh, but I'm like looking for different European schools um, and I'm kind of choosing to see if I want to go to like a larger school where there's more of a name or a more like medium level school where like the academic prestige isn't as high, but it's a more like accurate program. And I'm, I'm feeling like I want to like lean to the second one because I've already done like big school, number one, high pressure, like, you know, pretty volatile with the workloads and with the academic level that they ask for you. Um, but when you when you look for educational experiences, what do you look for? Honestly, there's prestige, obviously, but um, mm. since the U.S. isn't as like um, socialist as um, Canada, uh, the tuition here is pretty high. So definitely financial, mainly like the faculties, like. Um, seeing like uh, there's professors there that is in your field and like, mm-hmm. you know, that can help you with your research and yeah. All right. So let's, let, let's talk about the first thing you mentioned about the, the, the fees being really high in America. Well, what, what, what do you think about that, man? How do you feel about that? How does that, how does that make you feel? How, do you think it's right? Do you think it's wrong? Do you think it just is what it is? Like how, how are you feeling about it? Honestly, um i've looked at it as two different ways like um at first i thought it's just the the um the state government you know that's funding all these public universities at least like they're just not funding as much as um they used to be back in like the 70s or mm-hmm. the 80s you know they're just but then at the other hand like universities have been like hiring a lot of like administrative staff like not people who like teach in the classrooms but just like very experienced, career trained, like like the VP of um, diversity or VP of uh, administration or whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. these are just people who have like these really high roles and big salaries, but they don't do much for the school. And that's part of the reason why um, tuitions have been going up so fast. Like it's not the professor's salary, it's just the school staffing, you know, they've been hiring a lot of I don't want to say unnecessary, but they're not like crucial to like providing a good educational experience. Just mm-hmm. people sitting there with hot big titles. So mm. yeah, that's why. So how does it make you feel though? Um, I feel like it wouldn't be 
good for the future because um, students graduating with like, uh, I know students who are already in like six figures of debt, you know, from mm -hmm. like cost of attendance and everything. And they're going to have a hard time going out, buying their first cars after their job and like getting their first house and everything. It's just going to delay a whole generation, I feel. Yeah, bro. And I think, um, I think it's kind of bullshit, to be honest. I, um, because like, I, if you look at it from, from my perspective, I mean, Canada, there's, there's similar, like it, it still costs a lot of money to go to university in Canada, not as much as it does in the U S but you know, if you don't have those funds and you borrow them from the government, you have student loan programs and stuff like that. And they have interest added on and, and, um, and it leaves the person who's just graduated in a space where they have to worry about paying something off, but they have no experience to pay it off. And so it's this kind of, um, I, I think it's kind of like interesting double standard that creates more wealth inequality because you want to ensure the amount of people who can go get educated and the amount of skilled people who can get educated is at its max. But at the same time, if each, like if those people getting educated come from uh, like a less wealthy background, it just reinforces the current social structure and the current wealth structure in those different places, right? So for example, if you wouldn't have to pay for your own tuition, like let's say, you know, your parents or you come from a wealthy background, let's say you're, you're like, just like, whatever, um, just a random example. Parents have like a hedge fund or something that like great granddaddy put money into and now like they can like accrue wealth and and pay uh pay for their children's um university experience so they're already ahead you know you were telling me that you already know people who are, are six figures in debt so they're literally fundamentally already six figures ahead of these other people which makes it like I don't, bro it kind of makes it a little, bit, a little bit of an unfair game bro it's like if you're you're playing monopoly but before you can start playing somebody just takes all your money and it's like yo so <laughs> buy stuff oh shit you can't well shucks for you you know so I, I i think there's an interesting um it's just a very interesting issue for me to to understand because now there's also a lot of jobs that require you to get that base level education but they don't pay you the same amount of money as you've paid into your base level education i um i just find it kind of a strange thing because as you were saying like uh universities have to be these massive administrational corporations and organizations um to be able to be successful but it's just interesting because there's like a there's like this double standard, I suppose, going on because there's the utilitarianness of the education, which is like, so I get an education and it's good because more educated people is better. And schools are like, yeah, yo, we'll provide you education. So we're so good, whatever, whatever. But at the same time, it's like they're they're it's it's like they're you're you're getting set back because to get that education which is like advertised as this beautiful utilitarian thing where it's like only people can benefit from it whatever whatever you have to get so much uh you have to accrue so much debt to be there and you have to pay so many different i guess uh you have to pay so much more to be able to get that than you would have a long time ago and i i think there's there's a fundamental difference between like i like generations when it comes to financial uh understanding because when i was living in toronto like a lot of the time people asked me like yo do you own this house uh the house i was living in and i was like obviously i do not own this house this house is fundamentally worth 
$2 million. Where the hell am I going to get $2 million at 22 years old and studying political science at U of T? You know what I mean? Like, where, where am I going to do that? But then this old guy who's like lived on that street probably for 50 years is like, I bought my first house in 1952 for $20,000. And I worked at a, for a factory for to get that. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, I mean, like, cool that you were able to do that. It's not that I'm just a lazy idiot who can't buy a house, bro. It's like just fundamentally insanely expensive to buy a house. Like I was looking at like on on BBC News, it was like it it takes thirty years to buy a house in Canada, and like that is fundamentally you're like you know if you're looking in Toronto, if you're looking in Vancouver, you're looking at these like mega cities with uh, yeah well not even mega cities but the metropolis of, of of that area where the jobs where you could finance a house would be. It, it, I think it's just fundamentally, it, honestly, from what I'm talking about right now, it just seems like a very unsustainable system where people accrue a lot of debt and aren't able to pay for stuff. Like, like in China, I was, I was hearing that their, um, their mega kind of real estate companies are building these like huge cities in like more rural China, but nobody's buying the apartments. So the assumed wealth of their projects and the assumed wealth of their property cannot be fulfilled because not enough people can buy those things. So, so we're like teetering over like another possibility of another like fiscal crash through housing crisis in China. You know what I mean? And like, if for me, like, you know, you, you look at Toronto, you look at my experience in, 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 in Toronto where, you know, you have to accrue debt to go to the top school, but at the same time, like a house in Toronto costs so much. Like that's another reason why I moved to Latvia, bro. It's because like, it's more realistic for me to be able to personally by myself finance an apartment or finance like some sort of plot of land that I could live on than it would be if I lived in Toronto, which is strange. And I think it's really kind of like this postmodern capitalist idea about wealth and about what wealth actually means and how to get there and how many barriers there are to it. I, I kind of want to ask you, do you feel that these kind of wealth barriers are justified? And um, well, I, so I, I'm putting you in a bad space there. Uh, how do you feel about these wealth barriers better instead of if they're justified or not? Because they just are. But like, how, how do you feel about those wealth barriers, especially somebody who's more knowledgeable hmm. about economics and, and the markets? <laughs> and like that? I mean, Obviously, like we're seeing like um, a drastic increase in like housing prices everywhere, but especially in like these metropolitan cities. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that's just what happens when you live in a pretty, um, you know, like famous and stable country in the world. Like people, mm-hmm. like rich people from like developing countries want to park their money somewhere. So then they end up like buying real estates in like Canada and stuff. But what ends up happening is that drives the house price up and then it fucks the people living there because then the houses that their parents or their grandparents used to be able to afford becomes like almost impossible, you know? But um, I feel like it's just what happens when technology is progressively taking over what we do. Like, um, like definitely like there's the wealth inequality. We studied that in like one of my economics class, like uh, because the thing is like technology is um, progressing at such a fast rate 
that the training and the skills you need for it is increasing. Mm-hmm. And so then the wage gap between like the skilled workers and the unskilled workers are also increasing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But, um, but when it comes to, I guess, then I guess the question would be is how can you guarantee the life of, of, of a normal person to be of, of enough of a standard of living that we don't get back into like a, a space where it's very kind of polarized and eaten well, not even get back into, we're already sliding back into that space statistically. But when it comes to, I guess, um, the ability to ensure a good life for people, like how can you ensure a good life for somebody and at the same time see all this uh I guess, polarization of wealth? I think um, one of the ways is to provide a UBI, universal basic income for everyone. Mm -hmm. Because um, I believe that in in our lifetime, we'll witness technology like robots taking over almost all human jobs in factories, Mm -hmm. in stores, in restaurants, everywhere. And um, it was proposed by um, Andrew Yang. It's like, taxing technology basically so like since robots don't make a wage but they make money for their owners it's fair to say that since um they've taken jobs away from people who could have had them Mm -hmm. uh, that they pay a tax on the amount they produce and um transfer that to people who are displaced because of these technologies and like people were like calling like Andrew Yang like a communist or like a, like, you know, whatever and stuff. But like after the pandemic and people started receiving stimulus checks from the government, suddenly didn't seem like that crazy Bad idea. An idea. You know? Yeah. 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 No, people losing their jobs versus with a, with a virus versus were permanently from like robots it's kind of the same in the end of the day, you know? So. Yeah. Honestly, this is the first time I ever heard that idea. I think, I think you're right. There, there, there has to be some sort of base level of, um, tax for i guess robots and especially because yeah. like well it's not the robots themselves that are getting taxed but it's the people who make money off of the implementation of these robots who are working who get taxed because that would just make a fundamental sense because it's like otherwise otherwise bro otherwise the alternative is honestly uh excuse my language but otherwise the alternative is completely fucked bro it's like it's like that means nobody that means like i don't know five percent of people have like all the money and 95 percent of people have none of the money and that's even a worse situation than we're in now <laughs> globally so so i guess that makes fundamental sense I'll, I'll remember that one i'll remember that one but to um i, I want to completely switch the topic because we've been talking about finances a lot and that can be a little bit dry even though it's interesting mm-hmm. i want to ask you about creative outlets um so uh you shared to with me one of the most one of the coolest things that I think I've ever received as a gift from a friend so so basically it tell tell me about it tell me about your bookmarks bro yeah of course so um this past not even this past summer was it this past summer or was it the summer before anyway during the pandemic um uh being stuck at home I had a lot of emotions built up in me I feel like that's for everyone mm-hmm. and didn't want to be on social media the whole day. So I was talking with my friend and um, she was collecting dried leaves. Like um, she'd go on walks after it rains and then like 
she'd pick these flowers um, off of the ground that has just fallen. And then she presses them between like uh, her books. Mm-hmm. And um, a week later, this wonderful piece of very thin, like pressed um, piece of plant, you can use them for like your arts or um, in your paintings or drawings or anything. And I was like, since I can't really draw or paint, I was like, what can I do to make this look a little beautiful? Mm-hmm. So I was like, I can laminate them. So basically I grabbed two sheets of plastic and um, place them in there to form some sort of pattern. I cut them out and then um, I don't know. I Some people said that it can make for a good bookmark. So I started making them for my friends. And as um, yeah, that's all. <laughs> all right, bro. Honestly, it was it, it's a really cool thing, I guess. Um... It was it was a really beautiful bookmark, bro. I still have it, but but uh, but it's interesting, I suppose, when you when we're talking about these two, uh, um, I guess um, robots, bro. When it comes to robots, when it comes to uh, these kind of like post, not apocalyptic, but post capitalist, like what 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 was known as capitalist societies, where where we have to sit inside all the time, we interact through screens and robots and shit are taking our jobs um, and everything's being mechanized and you don't have to be in the same space anymore as you used to, that we have more time for creative outlets, bro. So for example, for me, I, I, I enjoy playing the ukulele now. I enjoy, you know, doing art, making this podcast, talking to my friends. Um, and it's kind of this, this interesting thing where at the same time, you know, there's, there's, something being i suppose taken away from you which is the old structure of how money is gained and how finances kind of came to you and it's kind of being replaced with this new ability to i guess uh democratize i guess the workforce in the sense of like you don't have to be physically in the same space all the time but also to give people more time for their families to give people more time with creative stuff to 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 give them more time to just be people um, so, so there's this interesting thing where like, uh, this increased mechanization, a lens for more kind of time, more time for somebody, um, which can be good, which can be bad, but it's completely new because, you know, back in the day, like talk, I talked to, you know, my parents, my you know grandparents are like old, just older people who've experienced different generations and different, uh, just different lives and, and how much they had to work compared to how much uh, and how they had to work and how, how their lives looked and compared to how, how our lives look. Right. Like I, um, I, I was talking to my dad the other day about like, you know, family stuff. And he was telling me how in his childhood, you know, like um, there was this thing called a, uh, a pig's burial where basically like multiple different um, you'd like, you'd grow a pig. And then at the end you would make sure that um, you'd get help from like all the farm houses around you to kind of kill the pig and to do all the work associated with that and then you'd share food with them and then it'd be kind of a party and everything like that and that was under 50 years ago 
You know what I mean? And now we live where I'm talking to you through Zoom. I'm in one continent, bro. You're in another continent. Uh, it's 8.36 for me. It's probably like 12.36 for you. You know what I mean? Like like completely different existences within a lifetime. So, so it's just fundamentally insane to see the difference between like my life, my father's life, my life, and my grandparents' life, and like my life, my mother's life, and like, like everybody else's lives and generationally have just been so different because of how quickly everything's changed with democracy with technology and like what norms are now are completely different and so like i i guess i'd i'd ask you have you have you also noticed that have you also noticed how different your life is compared to like your parents lives and stuff like that oh 100% yeah no my um my parents when they were growing up they didn't even have washing machines so they'd tell me like they'd spend like what like three four hours a week just doing laundries and stuff and that's that's just so much insane like technology's made everything so much more efficient but at the same time i feel like it's kind of isolated us to this sort of dimension that isn't like physical you know like we interact through zoom but what even is zoom like we're not like talking face to face but we're like we're talking to a screen that looks like the person who you think you're talking to, right? Like it's it's pretty it's pretty mind twisting in my opinion. Dope. Dope, Broski. I um we've been talking for about an hour. So I will slowly shut down, but I will ask for one last question of you. Um what would be one piece of advice? that you would give to the audience um, now? Just just like a daily piece of advice, doesn't have to be anything crazy. I'd say, um, always have hope. There's better days ahead. Like um, a while ago during the pandemic, I was like, I, fought, I felt like mental wise, I fall into like the deepest I've ever fallen like to, you know, like, but now I'm slowly, climbing back out you know people are coming out um if you feel like you're in a bad spot just keep hope endure through it and then um better things will definitely come okay and jason bro on that note man on always have hope bro i will uh i will um i'll say goodbye um everybody thank you for listening to this episode number 15 of the courage and kindness podcast my wonderful friend jason and uh, Jason, just say goodbye one last time. Goodbye. And thank you, Ansas, for inviting me on here. Very honored. <laughs>